Shale Khan is my co-host. He is the senior VP of Energy Strat. He is the senior VP of Marketing and Strat. Market. Wait, wait. I forgot. <laughs> you have a really hard See, time with so my title. It's so long and clunky. <laughs> senior VP of Research and Strategy. Uh huh. In Boston, Shale Khan is my co-host. He's the senior VP of Research and Strategy at the at the, at the VC firm. <laughs> Shale, your title's too hard. Do you want to just say he runs research and strategy at Energy Impact Partners? Shale Khan is my co-host. He runs... Wait, what do you run? There's research. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, just write it down and read it. <laughs> <laughs> I promise to get it right. I will get it right. Let's see if I can get the ads right. The Interchange is brought to you by Wonder Capital. Wonder Capital is making it easier to finance commercial solar projects and making it easier for investors to get in on those projects. According to GTM Research, Wonder is the leading commercial solar financier in the U.S. If you want to use Wonder's innovative platform to help support your project, visit wondercapital.com financing. That's Wonder with a U, wondercapital.com financing. We're also brought to you by Shoals Technologies Group. Shoals makes the best racking, wiring, and monitoring equipment in the game for solar and storage developers. If you want to keep innovating, if you want to keep dropping your costs, you need to source your balance of systems equipment from Shoals. Find out more at Shoals.com. That's S-H-O-A-L-S, Shoals.com. See? I got them right. <laughs> <laughs> This is the Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. Welcome. I'm Stephen Lacey, GTM's editor-in-chief here in Boston. Shale Khan is my co-host. He is the senior VP of research and strategy at Energy Impact Partners. Hey, Shale. Hey, Stephen. You're a lucky man. Normally, we're recording at like 6 a.m. West Coast time, but we managed a much more reasonable 9 a.m. session for you. I know. This is super luxurious. It also means that I'm at a, a different point in my caffeination cycle which, I mean, it could be better, it could be worse. It's kind of hard to tell. Normally, I just wake up with just enough time to like chug a bunch of coffee before we start recording. And now I'm at the tail end of my morning caffeine. So I don't know. Tell me if it feels different to you. All right. At the end of the show, we'll let you know. So this week, we're going to untangle the market for solar and storage and talk about how these two intersect and uh, what the market looks like for solar plus storage. And with us to discuss it is Green Tech Media's Solar Savant, our PV Piper, our Silicon Savior, MJ Shao. He's head of America's research at GTM for just one more week. Hey, MJ, how are you? I have not heard those introductions before. I <laughs> should have, we should have had those a long time ago, but thank you so much. I'm so happy to be on this. I'm heaping extra praise on you because this is going to be your last podcast with us before leaving GTM. Next week, you're going to close your eight and a half year chapter with GTM and you're heading over to Arcadia Power where you're going to be building some community solar offerings over there. So uh, this is your swan song, so to speak, MJ. And what better way to send you off than with an evaluation of the complex economics of solar the economics of batteries, and then those two technologies together. So, Shale, walk us through the factors that we want to try to understand today. Well, I was thinking about uh, what has happened this year in the U.S. market, particularly for solar and for storage as sort of uh, an ancillary piece to that. And I was just thinking that there's this like soup of factors that are all playing in with each other and making it 
I think actually a more complex market to play in than it has been for a long time. So just to list off some of the major factors that are like driving decisions and driving economics for solar, we have the investment tax credit, which was extended and is soon going to start to step down. We also got guidance on, on what the commence construction rules are around that, which dictates when you can get any given level of the investment tax credit. We of course have import tariffs um, that are in effect. And now, you know, folks are trying to figure out how to procure, whether they're going to pay more for imported panels or whether they're going to get exempt panels or domestic panels. So you've got a procurement challenge because of tariffs. Those also step down over time. You've got you know, other federal and state policy, obviously, in the longer term, we've got sort of clean power plan um, repeal and replacement that looks like it's it's going to happen and whether that impacts the market. Meanwhile, states are basically going in the opposite direction. We have, you know, California just passing this bill to get to 100 um, percent clean energy standard. Other states looking at something less drastic but similar. Um, and then there's just the economic environment, macroeconomic environment. Uh, which includes, you know, still pretty low interest rates, but the likelihood of, of interest rate hikes coming. So every single one of those things independently impacts the economics of solar and sort of what you can bid if you're trying to bid into a, an RFP. Um, but they impact it in different directions. So I'm interested to kind of tease out each one of those and figure out where it leaves us in terms of this market overall. But I guess I think the way to start MJ is sort of take us back to the beginning of 2018. Like what, what was the expectation for what would happen in the solar market this year and the storage market as well? Um, what were we, what were we ready for coming into the year? So at the beginning of the year, especially for solar, you still had a little bit of uncertainty with the section 201 tariffs coming into the market. And, you know, it wasn't until February until those tariffs would solidified, although Certainly at that point, uh, many, many stakeholders in the industry already had a view of what they thought was going to happen. Uh, but even still, you know, there was sort of this, with, with the tariffs being determined, um, there was still this atmosphere where a lot of folks saw that, you know, there's some stabilization in the market, perhaps a return to growth um, in the distributed distributed solar sector, as well as um, kind of a growth of the utility solar pipeline again. Uh, but what I think we've seen is actually quite a bit of more utility solar growth um, than even our analysts were expecting. Uh, and you have a confluence of factors there, I think, which, which we can dive into individually. Um, but first of all, you had this, uh, you had this completely unexpected Chinese feed-in tariff freeze at the end of May, where China basically stopped um, its feed-in tariff program in its tracks, and you know by our estimates, uh, eliminated as much as 20 gigawatts of global demand, and suddenly took a solar module industry and market that was balanced, fairly balanced as far as supply and demand was concerned, and shifted it back to that. Um, Shifted it back to an oversupply environment. Wait, let's uh, just then, contextualize that for a second. So the expectation was that the the global market would be something like 100 gigawatts this year before that, right? So China sort of mid-year, you know, pulling 20 gigawatts out of the market, that's, that's reducing the global solar market by 20% mid-year. Like it's a huge deal. 
Right, exactly. And, you know, when you consider all of these different pockets where you have tariffs in place, whether that's the U.S. or, you know, at the time in Europe as well, that also further decreased the places where Chinese supply could go as well. So you have, again, you have a smaller market once you take uh, China out of the equation. And the modules that were slated for China's end market aren't necessarily going to be able to go everywhere. So you suddenly have this, uh, you know, again, this shift to oversupply in this sub-market that is the the non-tariffed markets. Given that that move to cut the feed-in tariff was a surprise to, it seems like, pretty much everybody, and given that the the main um, harm that it does was to the Chinese manufacturers themselves, do we have any sense of why the Chinese government did it? I think that's a good question. I think part of it is simply that, you know, if you look at the Chinese fee and tariff program that was going to, that was 50 gigawatts last year, was going to be, or seemed like it would add another uh, 40, 50 gigawatts to the Chinese market. And of course, that's not all the um, all the feed and tariff program, but if you look at the overall end demand in China for solar, um, that's a lot of money in feed in tariffs that the Chinese government is, is, is spending. And if they're, you know, just like other countries, you know, their ultimate goal is to have solar and wind be self-sustaining markets. So, uh, long-term unsubsidized markets. And I think the decision to pull the feed in tariff was in part just based on the cost of those feed-in tariff programs, um, but also this expectation that uh, that Chinese PV would be, quote-unquote, reaching grid parity uh, within the next year or so. And we've certainly seen an uptick in you know, distributed generation projects, which in China, when we talk about distributed solar, it's, it's up to 20 megawatt systems. Um, but there has been an uptick there. And so the, you know, the thesis may actually prove out to be right for the Chinese government. So, okay, so the Chinese government you know, has this surprise move mid-year, pulls back on the feed-in tariff program. That throws the global panel market into heavy oversupply all of a sudden, which then presumably results in prices starting to crash. Exactly. So we've seen prices just even in the past year fall by... You know, upwards of 20% uh, in just a few months, actually. And so is that enough to overcome the impact of the tariffs? I mean, it's a good way to talk about sort of in the U.S. market what the price impact and supply impact of these these import tariffs has actually been and then how to measure that up against the global falling prices because of the oversupply. Yeah, the U.S. unfortunately adds another wrinkle, right, with the Section 201 tariffs, but more importantly with the anti-dumping, countervailing duty tariffs that uh, were levied against Chinese and Taiwanese cells and modules first in, I believe, 2012, and then, you know, again, later, a couple of years later as well. So that is what has really prevented a lot of Chinese-sourced products from coming into the U.S., um, whereas most of the demand or most of the supply for U.S. solar projects is coming from Southeast Asia or some of the rest of Asia markets out there. Um, the more important thing for the U.S. is the European Commission's decision not to extend their version of the tariffs on Chinese supply, which you know, opens up 
in the European markets back to Chinese supply and relieve some pressure on the Southeast Asian and rest of Asian supply that um, had been sort of shared between the U.S. and the, and the EU. So, uh, you know, stepping back, I guess, like net, net, net so far, um, have the, the import tariffs that President Trump imposed earlier this year had a meaningful impact on the domestic solar market in the U.S. or on prices in the U.S.? Or they ha- have they been just totally overcome by broader market forces? I think they've definitely had an effect because, you know, and, and more so than just the pure price effect, they had an effect on the certainty with which developers could bid on projects. And even now with the Chinese decision, you know, I feel like developers and suppliers are still just figuring out what their medium term pricing will be on modules. And again, that affects bids down the road. That affects the uh, price at which um, solar can be bid at in general. Okay. So now is a moment when I have to ask a question about whether you and I need to admit that we were wrong, which is back when the tariffs were first announced, um, we both you and I, and sometimes you and I together went on a bit of a tirade, uh, on on paper, and so we're on the record about this and on this podcast, talking about how we thought it was pretty unlikely that there was going to be a big wave of new domestic manufacturing for solar as a result of the tariffs. That obviously was the stated intention of the tariffs in the first place. Um, and we thought that for a number of reasons, including the fact that it didn't make any economic sense and the tariffs were short-lived, that there would not be a wave of new domestic manufacturing. Now, since then, if you you know, look at the news, there have been a number of announcements of new domestic solar manufacturing that supposedly is going to get set up in the U.S. over the next couple of years. Um, do you think that it's time for you and I to admit that we were wrong? So before I answer that, I think if we had stepped back into our analysis we, A, did admit that we thought that there would be some manufacturing that came up, but that it was irrational, right? And then secondly, we should look at the fact that a lot of this manufacturing, in which there's, I think now, over six gigawatts of capacity that's that's been announced, but the vast, vast majority, basically everything um, but First Solar and maybe a couple of other vendors um, have announced module-only capacity, which is concerning in two ways. You know, one, um, they're all competing over the same uh, cell capacity, two and a half gigawatt of cell capacity that's quote unquote tariff free. So it's uncertain how all of these manufacturers are going to be able to be competitive um, with their U.S. module manufacturing facilities if they're all running at full utilization or even close to full utilization. And then secondly, uh, I still think that there's not really a strong case for U.S. domestic capacity after the tariffs are eliminated, which means that, you know, it's really great that they're setting up these facilities right now. But, you know, if it's not a long term play, then are the tariffs really doing their job? You know, it's it's great for for three years, but if we're looking for really a long term play, manufacturing base for solar modules and cells, can we really say that the tariffs are successful? Now, should we have called this out when we were publishing our take on manufacturing? Probably. And we should have probably done that. So that is where I think I can admit that 
I at least I or we were wrong. Um, but still, I think the same questions remain as to why and what will happen to these facilities. All right. So tariffs are obviously one big factor impacting the solar market. Um, another one is the investment tax credit. MJ, just quickly first, remind us of the timeline of the step down of the ITC. And then, so what, one thing that did happen this year is we got guidance on, on commenced construction rules. So just tell us what the guidance was and how that impacts sort of how projects are going to get developed. Developers have until the end of next year, the end of 2019, to secure the 30% ITC. Then it steps down to 26% one year, and then in another, and by 2021, will be at 22%, and then after that, will be 10% in perpetuity. Now, what the commence construction ruling allows is for these projects to commence construction, and that's either by the 5% safe harbor rule or by the physical work test, which is you know actually starting physical work on the project. Um, once they start that, they basically lock themselves into um, that ITC rate as long as they finish building within four years, which um, for this, you know, for all intents and purposes, by the end of 2023, which is the cutoff for everything. Okay. So we have these tariffs, which are having an impact, but not a huge impact on prices, largely because the broader environment is making prices, prices crash. Second, we have the ITC, which the, you know, is at 30%. And depending on how you time your procurement may end up remaining effectively at 30% for a number of additional years. And then third, we have this low interest rate environment, which we are still in and have been in for years. Um, though there is an expectation that interest rates will rise, I think, you know, every developer has to sort of take a bet on how quickly they will rise and um, how much that'll impact the economics of projects. Let's just take a step back. And now that we've kind of put all of our ingredients in this soup, what does this meant in terms of you know, PPA prices for, for new solar projects this year and the, as you said at the beginning, the sort of build out of the pipeline. So for the first half of this year on net, we've actually seen around six or seven gigawatts of new contracted utility solar projects um, coming into the pipeline. And that is as a result of just more project certainty as well as, you know, new lower prices as well. You know, we've seen deals um, done by or being signed by Excel Colorado uh, in the low to mid $30 megawatt hour range. And then more recently, um, these NV Energy projects that are in the low $20 megawatt hour range for solar. So basically, you know, the, the ultimate result of all this stuff that is happening is that PPA prices continue to decline. Solar appears to be cheaper than ever, and the market more or less continues apace. Let's take a quick minute here to talk about our interchange sponsors. These companies are making solar happen, storage happen, and solar plus storage happen. We're going to hear more about solar plus storage coming up. Wonder Capital can help you, the commercial solar developer, secure financing for your project. And if you're adding storage, Wonder can help there too. Through its innovative underwriting platform, Wonder is financing 100 kilowatt to 5 megawatt solar PV projects, including those for nonprofits, community solar, virtual net metering, and PV plus storage. To find out how Wonder Capital can help you finance your next commercial solar project, head on over to wondercapital.com slash financing. That's wonder with a U, Wonder Capital, powering the commercial solar industry. We're also supported by Shoals Technologies Group. 
Scholes has been serving the PV industry since the 90s with the best balance of systems equipment, and it now serves storage developers too. When building your Solar Plus storage project, you're under crazy pressure to keep those costs down. Don't skimp. Scholes is the only place to turn for the highest quality American-designed equipment. Find out more at Scholes.com. That's S-H-O-A-L-S, Scholes.com. Scholes Inventing Simple. Okay, so I feel like we have a decent handle on where the solar market on its own is at. Let's bring in storage. Um, first of all, MJ, give us a sense of, especially for utility scale solar, all these new bids we're talking about, all these new PPAs, like what portion of them now incorporate batteries? You know, if you ask some developers, 100% of these bids are including batteries. Um, you know, I think. There's still solar bids that are going out there, but increasingly everyone, whether it's the uh, utilities that are releasing the RFP or just the developer themselves are adding a storage option uh, just to test the water, see what is what is um, available, what can actually be done, what sort of pricing, you know, a little bit of price discovery on the utility side as well. And these prices are in insane. So in 2017, Tucson Electric Power came out with what, what at the time was the the lowest PPA for solar plus storage at $45 a megawatt hour, 4.5 cents per kilowatt hour. And then all of a sudden we saw a slew of projects um, come in under solicit, utility solicitations that hit the 36 megawatt hour mark, um, $36 per megawatt hour mark. That was Excel uh, and in Colorado. And now we're seeing contracts come in at around $30 per megawatt hour. Um, NV Energy put out a major solicitation and a bunch of developers bid in solar plus storage projects. So the, the, the numbers here have been continually moving downward and the volume of projects seems to be going up. I do want to make one, I want to offer one caveat to those record low solar storage PPA prices, which I just think when everybody, when we announce them each time, everybody should pay attention to. This is a bit of a like hashtag actually, but um, it is important to know when you see a solar plus storage PPA, the storage capacity as a share of the solar capacity. In other words, if you have, and this was true of say the Tucson project, that was a hundred megawatt, I think it was a hundred, no, it was an 80 megawatt solar project with a 20 megawatt four hour storage uh, project attached to it. So the storage capacity was one quarter of the solar capacity. In other words, you're only shifting one quarter of the maximum output at any given time. If it had been, you know, equivalent, for example, you would have expected the cost to be significantly higher. And so that can move the needle in either direction in terms of how much of an adder you get when you add storage to one of these projects, depending on how much you're actually trying to store. Right. And that's true for the Nevada projects as well. They're about the, the storage capacity is about a quarter of the solar capacity in terms of megawatts. And those durations are also four hour durations, which is another uh, piece of, you know, when you look at storage bids, you always have to look at the instantaneous output in terms of megawatts. But, you know, more importantly, what's going to determine the number of batteries is how long that duration is. Right. So, but with that caveat in mind, I mean, it remains true that like it's somewhat astonishingly cheap. It appears to be somewhat astonishingly cheap to add, add batteries to a utility scale solar project. Um, how much of that 
has to do with the the investment tax credit, MJ. You, the fact that you can qualify, the storage can qualify for the ITC if attached to a solar project under certain conditions. I think it's a huge portion of it, and I think that's why you do see some of these projects being announced and completing within the next few years is to get ahead of that ITC cutoff. And you know, you can take the uh, you can take the ITC on the storage portion as long as I think up to se- or more than seventy five percent of the storage is being charged with solar, and that's sort of the cutoff, and you get sort of prorated between seventy five percent and one hundred percent being charged uh, of of that battery being charged by solar. Which is also another reason why the projects tend to have smaller storage capacity relative to solar capacity because you can then guarantee that that when you're charging the battery, you can charge it from available solar output. I want to go back to one thing you said, which was that some developers are including storage in almost all their bids. The question is, when does, you know, when do batteries become ubiquitous in solar? Like at at what point are are these... um, are pretty much all developers, including batteries. And how are utilities changing their solicitations so that they're getting more batteries when, you know, reaching out for for these bids? I'm just kind of curious about this, the steady march on the development and utility procurement side. Sure. Well, you didn't ask about residential storage, but around, I think, 95% of grid interactive residential storage is being attached with solar today. So it's nearly ubiquitous when you're looking at the um, more the residential behind the meter market. But as far as the front of the meter side of the industry, you know, we're still under a 1% attachment rate if you're looking at actual connected projects in terms of, you know, one less than 1% of solar has energy storage attached to it on the for utility scale projects. Um, again, with utilities, there is an increasingly include there's an increasing inclusion of energy storage in these solicitations, and partially it's it's for price discovery. It's to kind of figure out what application um, they can use energy storage for, and I think that's one of the key pieces that is still a little bit uncertain within the utility front of the meter energy storage market is. What's the actual business model? What's the actual um, economic model for making that energy storage work? And that is going to be determined either by the wholesale markets, of which some wholesale markets are prepared to look at energy storage, but um, many are you know, kind of developing these rules as part of the FERC 841 process. And then secondly, or it has to come from the utility offtaker and how they're going to compensate storage for the benefits that they bring or how are they going to fit within that that solar project output. So that is there's still a little bit of working between both sides of the deal. Um, you know, we should you know certainly Excel and NV Energy are not going to be the be all end all and we should expect more announcement, especially as more utilities are looking at building in energy storage into their resource plans going forward as well. Okay, so let's wrap up with just sort of like high level, what are we expecting for the solar market in the US over the next few years? Is it is it growing? How fast? Is it shrinking because we're still in this ITC hangover period? Like what's the overall picture? Yeah, so for the rest of 2018, we'll 
probably end up, 2018 will probably end up fairly similar to the size of the 2017 market. And that'll be true for 2019. We're probably going to hold around this 10.5 to 11 gigawatt number for you know, 2017 through 2019 per year. Uh, and then we expect to see an uptick. We'll, we're seeing a recovery in terms of the pipelines uh, as far as procurement. Uh, solar costs continue to come down for distributed solar as well as new policies in different markets opening up, especially the non-residential space. So long term, you know, we see the market bumping up to somewhere around 13 and a half, even 14 gigawatts. And that'll be pretty much true through the end of the ITC period. MJ Shao is head of America's research at GTM Research, which is now Wood Mackenzie, right? We're, we're folding all the research outlets together under the Wood Mackenzie banner. That's right. Very excitingly, we'll be Wood Mackenzie Power Renewables with our sister company, Make Consulting, as well as the uh, legacy power team at Wood Mackenzie. We're all one uh, unified, integrated team now. Well, man, you've been a stalwart over here at GTM. It's been nothing but a pleasure working with you um excited to see what you're going to do over at arcadia power what are you doing between now and that gig are you taking any time off are you going to disneyland are you investing in any solar projects what are you doing i am not taking any time off there is too much work to be done and a lot of exciting things that will happen so i will take off my gtm hat on a friday and i will put on my arcadia hat on a monday and speaking of taking a little time off, Shale, you actually are taking time off. You're going to uh, Tanzania for a little trip for a couple of weeks, so we're not going to hear from you for a bit. That's right. We'll be off for just a couple of weeks, but then we'll be back, and I will be fresh and new and hopefully not eaten by a rhino. I, I would like to <laughs> tell our listeners that Shale pretty much took my itinerary from my Tanzania trip last year, and he and his wife are basically copying that entire t- itinerary. Is that fair, Shale? Yeah, not basically, literally. <laughs> Down to the same safari guy. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, have a good time. Get our podcast anywhere you get your shows. Send a link to your colleagues, your friends, your family, anyone who would geek out about energy stuff. Uh, and thanks for listening. With Shale Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Interchange. We'll catch you in a couple weeks.